Are you ready to learn? Because my super experienced guests are ready to share some really valuable information. Make sure and listen all the way to the end to get help and support. So let's start with the best audio experience. Hello, guys. Welcome to our show. Today we discuss about building innovative products that can compete with big brands. And I'm excited to discuss this topic with Damian. How are you? I'm great, Anatoly. Nice to talk to you today. Yeah, you know, when I check out your profile uh, on LinkedIn, Damian uh, Rollinson, I, I found that you have extended experience. Can you tell more about your experience, background, and why you decided to share with us about building innovative products? Yeah, sure. I'll try to make the story short rather than long. Um, I have been in the local search industry for about 16 years now. I always remember that because my daughter was born in the spring of uh, the same year that I started in local. And so there, she's 16 now, and so am I in a way. Uh, and back in that era, um, you know, local SEO was basically in its infancy. It didn't really exist as an industry, except for a couple of companies who were kind of starting to wake up to the fact that consumers were starting to turn to Google Maps and other services. All of them were still very new and businesses needed a way to kind of manage their presence online. And it was just the beginning of a shift where there's been a lot of evolution since then, the beginning of a shift where before around 2005, when Google Maps launched, um, a business marketed itself using its own website, right? And this was about local mm -hmm. businesses, about large corporations. Obviously that's still true to some extent, but every year since then, they've lost a little bit of ground, right? And, and you know, within the last couple of years, I'm sure you're aware of the, uh, research that Rand Fishkin has done. I know he was on the on your uh, show actually um, around zero click search, right? And so yeah. he did the two studies in a row, and the first one showed that Google zero click search was above fifty percent, and then he did it again, and it was above sixty six percent. And so <laughs> that's the story of the local search industry, as well as many other industries, where Google has basically eaten more and more and more and more market share. And what that ends up meaning for a business that's trying to market themselves is it's a lot less important, still important, but it's kind of a second of secondary importance to market your business using your own native managed properties, your own website, and much more important to make sure that these kind of you know, storefronts on the internet, you know, your Google business profile, your Facebook page, your Yelp profile, all these other outposts that they're properly optimized, that they're able to convert more traffic, that they're ranked as highly as they can be. And that becomes more and more competitive over time. You know, Google's not standing still. Um, other sites are kind of trying to follow suit to some extent and introduce new features as well. And so what it means to be competitive in those channels is, you know, that you're really kind of paying attention to the latest uh, developments and so on. And so, you know, back in the day, one of the early companies that I worked with was called Universal Business Listing. And we that was one of the first companies that had a local SEO offering of any kind. And it was at a time when citation building was the key 
to ranking in local, which basically just meant build an instance of yourself in on as many third-party directories and sites as you possibly can. And so this company, all we sold was a service that gets you listed in these big, um, in the, the uh, directories of these big companies called data aggregators. Um, at the time, it was Info USA and Axiom and companies like that, that would then license data to Google, right? And to City Search and MapQuest and, you know, uh, YP.com and all these sites that consumers used to use in great numbers. And just by going through that data aggregator channel and getting all those citations created, you were able to actually rank really well in local. Um, but that's not true anymore. Now it's much more about having direct API connections into Google and really kind of knowing what you're doing, being able to solve problems when they occur. Uh, and the company that I work for now, Soshi, um, we focus um, exclusively on multi-location brands. So this is chains and franchises, restaurants, retail stores, grocery stores, banks, basically any vertical you can think of as long as it's, as it's kind of B2C, brick and mortar type of a vertical. Uh, and so we try to solve these problems at a larger scale. So typically our clients are going to have from 100 locations, maybe a thousand locations, you know, at the high end, it's many thousands of locations. And so they've got to make sure, you know, hours of operation are up to date across all of their properties, or they've got, you know, the right kinds of photo content, or they're managing their reviews. So it's a very complex problem to solve, but we've kind of solved it with a combination of technology plus expertise. Mm -hmm. Love it, love it. By the way, we have a sponsor today, iHrefs, SEO tools and resources to grow your search traffic. You know, yeah, it's well-known tool. Yep. Uh, and uh, can you tell uh, more about uh, difference between local SEO and uh, international SEO or uh, national SEO? Uh, because uh, I see when webmasters are using the same methods to promote local uh, websites, but they have local intent, some difference. Can you tell more about this difference? Yeah, absolutely. So local SEO is, it's, it's correct to think of it as a kind of a subset or a niche within SEO generally, but there are some significant differences. I don't actually really think of myself as an SEO person, although mm -hmm. I tangentially, I, I, you know, one picks up a lot of things about SEO, but if you ask me to do like an SEO audit of Nike's website or something like that, you know, that's not what you want to hire me to do. It's a different <laughs> area of focus. And from a Google perspective, sometimes I, it bothers me that we only ever talk about Google, but, you know, of course they are kind of the definition of that universe. Um, from a Google perspective, um, the algorithms are different algorithms. So there's the main, what they call the core algorithm that drives search results for organic, which is your website and every other website competing for whatever traffic they're competing for. And those are managed in a specific way. We kind of know, although nobody knows, you know, at, at the end of the day, exactly how the algorithm works. There's a lot of information um, about uh, the Google quality raters. You can read their guidelines. You can see what kinds of things Google looks for. And then there's, you know, the sort of basic ranking algorithm and then all of the improvements that have been made to that over time. Probably the most significant one being the introduction of the knowledge graph plus all the different machine learning components that are being used today. It's good to have an understanding of all of that stuff. 
And where it applies for us has mostly to do with competing for local intent searches within organic, right? So that's your small business website or from a multi-location perspective, that means building out local landing pages for every store location that are properly optimized in terms of page load speed that have um, schema markup is a big deal for us because um, schema.org defines a bunch of different schema types for local businesses. There's dozens of them, depending on which category you fall into. And they have different kinds of fields that you can fill out. You know, restaurants can include menus and things like that. So having proper, proper schema markup on your pages and lots, another, lots of other bells and whistles that have to do with typical SEO. But mm -hmm. for most businesses, they're not going to rank well in organic for a search for Mexican restaurants near me or anything else like that, right? Unless mm -hmm. the market's really small or the competition is, you know, not there, mostly you're going to rank in local. And then the organic ranking is kind of a support to that. So you want your organic ranking to be as strong as it can be, but really you're focused on that sort of local algorithm. And so again, it's managed separately. It has a different kind of logic and it's driven by, according to Google, and they have a pretty informative um, help page that talks about how to improve your local ranking in Google that you can look up. Um, it's, uh, it's three main factors. It's, uh, it's distance, relevance, and prominence. And the first two are kind of easier to understand. The third one is a little more complicated. So distance basically is proximity. So if I'm searching from my phone, the results that I see are going to be prioritized according to how close physically that business is to where I'm standing, right? And if I'm on my desktop, my laptop, Google's going to do the best it can to, to judge from my IP address or from whatever information it has available, where is this person and how close are these businesses? Strangely enough, Google even will showcase businesses where distance arguably doesn't really matter that much. So if I'm looking for a personal injury attorney, for example, I definitely don't care if the attorney is a block away or a mile away, as long as they're the best attorney. But even so, Google's going to tend to prioritize the attorneys that are closer to me because they have this kind of one size fits all attitude about businesses. And so proximity matters for all, all business types. And then the second one is relevance. So that that factor basically just means, is this really a personal injury attorney? And what evidence can I find that tells me that? So is, does the business name say that? Does the primary category say you know, that would be the main place you would look. Do the secondary categories indicate that? Or more and more, Google is actually looking for relevant signals in other places. One really big place that they're looking for relevant signals these days is reviews. So for example, um, I had a, a, a post recently where I was writing about um, when you're searching for restaurants near me, uh, a business might have the primary category of cafe, but some cafes are really more restaurants, not coffee shops, right? And so Google is going to pull a snippet from a review that says, this is a great restaurant. And they're going to put the restaurant word in bold, you know, and that's going to reinforce for me that this is a relevant result. And sometimes relevance is more about the long tail. So if I'm searching for something very specific, classic local SEO example is pet friendly hotel, right? A hotel where I can bring my dog, for example. So a pet friendly hotel might, is not something that's going to be identified by the primary category. You know, it's just going to say hotel or whatever, but the reviews might say this place is very pet friendly. And then that bold face term is going to show up 
in a review snippet, again, reinforcing this result is relevant to me. So Google really wants to make that connection between the right business and the consumer's very specific need. And then the third component is prominence. And prominence basically means, so if proximity is how close is this business to me, if relevance is how is this the right match for the thing that I'm searching for, whether general or, or, or very specific, prominence just basically means, is this a good example of this type of business, right? So the primary drivers of prominence are going to be a high average review rating, um, a great number of reviews. Actually, studies have shown that average rating is less of a determination of high ranking than review volume is which is kind of odd, but it's partly because um, there's a lot of inflation in review ratings on Google these days. Everybody's got a 4.0, so it kind of equates to, doesn't really differentiate the businesses very well. Um, so if you have, if two equal, uh, otherwise equal businesses both have the same like 4.0 star rating, but one of them has 300 reviews and the other one only has four, then you're gonna favor the one that has 300. So that volume is a, is a strong signal as well. But Google says that they look at lots of other sources for prominence. In fact, they even look at the actual uh, amount of time that the business has been around, if they can find that information. Uh, other mentions of the business in other places online. This is partly where citations still kind of have a, an indirect influence on, on ranking. Um, sentiment as expressed in the content of reviews. Uh, and and other things that that the prominent signal is a little bit more mysterious and people don't know as much about it. Uh, but those are kind of the main drivers of local SEO. And again, those things are very specific to local. They don't work the same way when it comes to general organic search. Uh, and the one of the reasons that we we know that the algorithms are completely divorced or separate from each other is because they're updated on different cycles. So the Google core algorithm gets updated on a, on a semi-regular basis and usually comes alongside an announcement from Google. Hey, we had this, you know, May core algorithm update uh, and, you know, everybody gets excited about whether their rankings went up or down. But the local algorithm is updated on a different schedule. It doesn't happen as often. The last major local algorithm update was last November, December. Uh, and the you know the effects are completely different. So it's it's just a different. Uh, although although closely linked to each other, the, they they are different universes. Mm -hmm. you, you remind me a French movie, uh, Taxi. You know uh, when uh, uh, the policeman asked the uh, driver, "Can you tell more about Mercedes Benz?" And he replied, "You know, I'm not expert." Uh, in Mercedes-Benz because uh, I, I know about Ferrari and after that shared a huge list of features of Mercedes-Benz, you know, <laughs> and you are on the same boat, you know. I'm not uh, uh, good with local SEO, but you shared a lot of insights that many experts can do it, you know. <laughs> Thanks, yeah. Well, over time, you get to know these things. The other things that you get to know are the things you're not, you, you shouldn't ever speculate on because people will jump on you and tell you that you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. Ranking factors is a really big one. There was a kind of a, um, uh, like a, 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 a very controversial moment. Uh, I guess it's a couple of years ago now when in that same help document that I was just talking about where Google talks about um, distance, uh, relevance, and prominence, they also have a list of things you should do in order to rank better in local searches. And so they say, make sure you claim your 
your all of your profiles, kind of an obvious thing to do, because if you don't claim or verify your Google profiles, you cannot do anything to change the content, right? So you have to claim them, you have to fill them out as completely as possible. Um, the uh, in, in, you know, uh, the Darren Shaw Whitespark report, local search ranking factors, which was uh, its latest edition came out also toward the end of last year, around the same time as the algorithm update. Um, said again that Google business profile optimization itself is the single biggest ranking factor in local. So that really aligns with what Google says you should do, which is fill out all this information. Um, they say you should share photos. They say you should, uh, in a recent update to that page, they said that you should list your products that you sell. So they give these specific kind of recommendations. And again, at one point a couple of years ago, they added to that list that you should fill out your merchant description, which is like a little paragraph that describes what kind of business you are, what differentiates you from the competition. And the local SEO community went like crazy. And they said, we've tested this. This does not drive improvements in ranking. And they actually shamed Google into taking that recommendation out of the page. <laughs> so <laughs> People take these things very seriously. You have to be careful what you say is actually a ranking factor or not, because there's a lot of testing and trying different things out. And, you know, people have a good, a good handle on those things these days. Yeah, it, it often depends, you know, uh, if something yeah. works for one project, it doesn't mean that it will work everywhere. So yeah, it depends. It's better yes. to consider your preferences. Okay, let's get back to the main topic, uh, building innovative products. Can you tell where to start? For example, if I have interesting idea uh, and want to build uh, a new product uh, to change the market, uh, where to start? How to learn about uh, innovative products? Uh, how uh, do I know that my product will compete in the market and how to consider a, a buying persona with that? Yeah, well, you want to look where the uh, where the opportunity uh, or the problem is, you know, the most uh, sticky or, or, or difficult to um, solve through anything other than technology. I know that, you know, in simplistic terms, but I think this is always a, a powerful statement that um, one of the founders of, of Twitter said several years ago that uh, if you want to build a successful Internet company, you have to look at a thing that people have always wanted to do, some basic human need, uh, and, and, and look at the way it's being fulfilled right now and try to remove steps from the equation, you know, mm -hmm. make it easier, remove friction, right? And so that's, uh, you know, a obvious illustration of that is something like Uber, where, um, it took a little bit of insight and creativity and inspiration to notice that the taxi system was, as they say, in internet, in internet world broken, right? Taxis were broken somehow. Well, not as efficient as they could be. They weren't highly inefficient, but you know, you had to call one, you had to wait for it. You didn't know when it was going to come. Uh, you had to carry some form of payment with you. How many of those steps can we take out of the equation to make it smoother and, you know, if you do that successfully, then you're going to have, uh, you know, a huge sea change in the world. Not all product innovations involve complete sea changes. Sometimes it's a little more subtle than that. Uh, but if you look at, you know, an example in our space, which is nowadays, I would say a little bit out of date, but it can be illustrative because it shows how someone took a look at the market and 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 um, 
overturned the thinking about it, you know, uh, uh, looked at it from a new angle that hadn't been applied before. So in the days of uh, universal business listing, wh where I was talking about, you know, we basically took, we had a business, you know, fill out a, a form and then we uh, collected all of their information and then we sent it in a spreadsheet to these data aggregator companies who then published things out to the internet. And uh, we, it was kind of a, um, sometimes they call it spray and pray, which basically <laughs> means you send it out a bunch of places and then you hope for the best, but there's not really any evidence of success. We weren't often able to demonstrate that the listings were actually published because it takes a long time. And because the publishers don't want to acknowledge that they're working with the data aggregators. So it, you know, it was successful up to a point, but there was a lot of unsolved problems and you were going to reach a point where the market wasn't going to really support additional growth because some businesses are going to start to ask you for proof that you did what you said you were going to do. And we couldn't provide that proof. Right. So, mm -hmm. so Yext came along, they had the idea that if they could control the way that data was syndicated so that they were in charge of when it happened, if they could make those updates real time or as close to real time as possible, and if they could provide objective proof that the update actually occurred, then they could take that market and make a leap, you know, sort of a leap to the next stage of thinking. And so they created this network called Power Listings. It required a lot of money and a lot of technical innovation and a lot of other factors to actually make it happen. But what they did was they were the first company, to give them credit, to create um, broad-based API connections to all of the publishers in local that mattered at that time. Um, they had a hard time getting into Google, but all, all of the sec, you know, let's say secondary ones, you know, Yahoo and Bing and, 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 uh, um, uh, you know, Foursquare and, 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 and lots of other sites like that city search ones that we don't really think of now as, as important, but they were at the time. And through those direct API connections, they were able to say, I'm going to change your phone number over here in our platform. I'm going to hit publish, and then I'm going to refresh the Foursquare profile for your business. And there's that phone number updated. It sounds kind of small, but I was on stage when the, I, I was not on stage. I was in the audience when they demonstrated this on stage for the first time. And everybody went, wow, <laughs> you can do that. <laughs> and, and so for the time, that idea of you're not spraying and praying anymore, you're controlling the syndication of the data and showing it to the buyer. That was very powerful. And they were able to do an IPO on the basis of having solved that problem. I would mm -hmm. argue that citation building is not the way to solve uh, today's local search problems. Uh, because again, all of these 80 or so, however many directories that are in those kinds of networks, most of them don't get any consumer consumer traffic anymore. The market has consolidated to, a, you know, only about five or six platforms with Google being the big one uh, that really matter. But um, it's innovation like that, that sees the way things are working uh, today, that recognizes that there's friction in the process and that sort of uses creativity and inspiration to, to leap over what has been done before. That's really where you find, uh, you know, the most, uh, the most dramatic kinds of success. Again, like I say, there's more subtle examples. You can solve smaller problems and still be successful.
Mm-hmm. Yeah, love it, love it. So valuable. Uh, can you tell, uh, for example, um, I remember when Jeff Bezos uh, shares about uh, that m- many businesses uh, are obsessed about competition, but Amazon uh, is obsessed about customers. Can you tell uh, <laughs> where to be obsessed? I don't know. <laughs> or, uh, you know, uh, because, uh, for example, I often see when... Uh, Many projects uh, are looking uh, for getting insights from uh, the average data, online studies, tools, and they don't care about uh, some unique uh, data, for example, to learn from social media, specific groups, to learn real uh, pain points that we have today. And many great businesses uh, learn this data, first part data, not only the average data. Can you tell how to find this way of learning data and be obsessed about customers? Yeah, well, there's there's a couple of things I can think of that are that are very interesting there. Um, and, and I think... Um, the experiences that we had going through the pandemic were were really eye-opening um, in terms of what we do and the impact that it has on ordinary consumers that we hadn't really been as aware of before. You know, in, in SEO, you tend to get uh, very geeky about things and you're thinking about them from the point of view of, again, data, but not the people behind the data techniques Mm -hmm. but not the meaning behind the technique does this move the needle when you're looking in ahrefs or you're looking in semrush or whatever your tool is um rather than how does this impact actual human beings in the world right but it does have an impact and so for local you know it's become so ubiquitous as the way people find information about everything that they need that um when the pandemic occurred and there was a break in that process and things weren't as available as they had been before, or when the needs that people had became more urgent, then you really saw where the cracks were in the process, where the seams started to show up, right? So we had, for example, one of our um, verticals that we do a lot of work in is groceries, which, uh, you know, grocery store brands. So we have several clients um, in that industry. And when the pandemic occurred, they were aware that there were certain sensitive populations like seniors, older people, as well as people with health issues, compromised immune systems. And those people didn't want to be in crowds, right? And they wanted to be able to shop at times that were uh, safer for them. And so a grocery store client of ours had a great idea that they should begin scheduling early shopping hours that were only for seniors and people with health issues. So the first hour of the day, like seven to eight in the morning, was set aside just for those people. It was a great idea, but they had a communication problem. So there was no... uh, way to publish this information within local search. You couldn't publish it to your Google profile. There was no good field for this. Uh, You just had your hours of operation, or if it was Christmas, you could list different hours. But other than that, you had no options. Nothing on Yelp, nothing on Facebook. And so people would come to the store. They would see the sign that says, you know, special shopping hours, and they would complain. Why did I not know about this? Why, were you, mm-hmm. why didn't you tell me about this online? And the store manager would say, well, we published the information on our website. 
and the senior you know person who didn't see that they would say well we don't look at your website we look at google mm-hmm. and so this was a, a real sign of breakage right this was a missed opportunity something that you could arguably say a lot of these things could have been thought of before but they just didn't and and the urgency behind it was a thing that we didn't anticipate either and so you know we along with several other companies who were experiencing these same kinds of things, we were able to advocate with Google, hey, you really need to create a field for this. And so they did a couple of, it took them a couple of months to gather all the inputs and figure out how they were going to do it. But they introduced a field called more hours, which is like secondary hours. And it allows you to specify that you have these safe shopping hours along with other things that they might've wanted to do all along. Like, do you have different hours of operation for your drive-through window than for your normal store, uh, you know, that kind of thing. So they, they introduced other improvements along with those. So the, the, but it was the human impact that really came, uh, you know, that was really made, made clear to us. Um, another thing that we do that kind of illustrates that there are humans behind the data that, that, you know, really, um, uh, make things come alive is, is, is reviews. So, you know, consumers leave hundreds of reviews for local businesses and some businesses, if they already have a really strong customer service culture, like we work with some restaurant chains that are really known for being, you know, putting customer care like at the forefront of their priorities, they will be very conscientious about res- reading all of their reviews, writing responses or replies to their reviews, reaching out when people have a bad experience to offer them, you know, a free meal item the next time they come to the restaurant or whatever the case might be. So there are certain kind of cultures where you don't have to talk them into paying attention to reviews. They already know that this is an important channel for them. But there are others, like let's say discount retailers. They don't care about their reviews. They don't read them. They don't, they know they're bad. Their average ratings are typically, you know, three stars, maybe below that even. Uh, And they don't, uh, they don't think it's important because they have a, they have a mindset which says, um, we're a low margin business, high volume, low margin. Everybody knows that our, you know, our floors are kind of dirty and, you know, our staff is not very nice, but they come Mm -hmm. there, things are cheap. And if we keep driving that, will be successful, right? Mm-hmm. So I had a conversation a couple of years ago with one of these discount store people and we were trying to sell them on, you need to pay attention to your reviews. This is something every business should do. And finally, the executive we were talking to, he said, um, look, we know that, again, we know our floors are dirty. We know our, 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 our managers are rude. We know our bathrooms are dirty. We know all of these things. We don't really care about that. But if you could tell me that the shelves are empty, I would care about that, right? (laughs) Then you're not selling a product, right? And so reviews are a signal of many different things. And no matter what brand you are, you're gonna find the angle where that information is gonna be valuable to you. Um, I would argue that brands should do more to make customers actually happy. But again, you know, if your priority is just selling product, then reviews are going to show you when that's not working well, or they're going to show you when specific products are winning out in terms of consumer sentiment over others. And they'll even tell you why, you know, so that sort of 
approach to this, you know, huge source of unstructured data, as long as you're analyzing it from the right perspective and looking for the right kinds of things that drive the bottom line for your business, you know, you're going to find that information there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember when Bill Gates said that negative reviews uh, are the best uh, tool to develop your products or innovate yeah. products. <laughs> yeah, uh, and 95% uh, of customers read reviews before buying products. So if yeah. you have negative reviews, a lot of them, it's better to fix. And I like your insights how to do it, you know, to provide, I don't know, like extra uh, uh, free lunch or something similar. Yeah, why not? So uh, if you can decide uh take away this feeling and uh i found that uh, in one study 30 percent of customers can replace negative review with uh, positive review if you decide their uh, problems uh, yes yeah. that's that's yelp's study yes and they they also say <laughs> that this will that 30 percent will write a better review but you have to respond quickly yeah, within like 24 to 48 hours in order to make that happen. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's another thing that brands are really challenged to do. They, they, they don't get around to it quickly enough. And, you know, there's a lot of things about consumer sentiment. An another big topic these days is how should brands address social issues? Because, you know, there are so many things that are in the news right now that people are concerned about and the younger consumers, especially want brands all all the studies say that they want brands to speak out they want brands to have a voice on those topics and there's a lot of challenge in doing that the right way because if you do it in a way that seems like you're just capitalizing on the issue um you can do more harm than good you know but they're there but you know this these are all examples we we tend to think of things at this micro local level but even at the national level and in between, um, there are all of these things about consumer expectations that brands really need to be alert to uh, in order to in order to meet them or else somebody else is going to do a better job and they're going to lose out as a result. Mm -hmm. Love it, love it. Uh, can you tell, uh, for example, if you started today from scratch without any experience, skills, what will you do to learn more about building innovative uh, brands? For example, if someone want to jump on this field or help others you know, to sell the services, consultancy, what uh, will you do to uh, learn more about that? Yeah, well, um, if we're talking about the specific industry that I work in, I mean, I'm a big fan of the stuff that Ahrefs produces, actually, or, or Semrush, mm -hmm. but, but also Moz. Moz is a terrific source. I would think of uh, Miriam Ellis and other writers at Moz who write lots of kind of basic guidelines for local businesses to understand SEO. And if you're trying to understand local SEO from a marketer or from a product development perspective, you really want to know that industry well. Um, it's, uh, it's easy to make assumptions that are then incorrect, like I was talking about ranking factors that people you know think may be the case, but they really aren't. Um, you know, you really want to understand all of those pitfalls and ins and outs of, of, of uh, any industry that you're diving into. Local SEO just happens to be the one that I live in day to day. But no matter what it is, you want to have a pretty strong sense of, you know, what those priorities are, what matters within that space. Um, but I think it's also important to approach things from the perspective of a normal human being. So you want to think also as a consumer, what are my needs and what are my frustrations? You know, I think there's there's plenty of things 
Um, you know, one, one example of a problem that was only just recently solved by Apple Maps, for example, um, was to be able to plan multiple stops on a route. You, you would think they would have solved that problem a long time ago. Google did solve that problem a long time ago. But o Apple is only just catching up with the idea that if I'm planning a trip from one city to another, I might want to plan stops along the way. And if so, I should be able to have a route that, you know, or a navigation system that accommodates that. And that's the kind of frustration that as a user of the product, you, you should be able to, you know, infer that more people than just you are going to want a certain kind of a feature, right? And then, of course, you want to test that, right? So you want to test it through, I mean, you're talking about um, negative reviews as, as great feedback for product innovation. Well, if you don't have an, a mechanism to ask for that kind of feedback, then you're going to miss out on what consumers will tell you. So you might think you have the best idea in the world. But when you get market feedback, whether it's from your selective customer base, whether it's done through interviews, uh, you know, which can be very informative or whether it's more data driven, you know, A-B testing, um, those, that kind of feedback is going to tell you that your really good idea does or doesn't resonate for various reasons. And it might be because it doesn't make sense to people. It might be because there are steps that you've missed. Uh, it might be because it's too buggy. I mean, there are so many different reasons but yeah, I mean, you, you definitely want to solicit that feedback. I, I, I believe for sure in the methodology of like, you know, lean development, agile, iterative, you know, where you should be shipping things and then figuring out what's wrong with them. But if you don't do the second half of that, which is constant iteration based on the feedback you're receiving, then, you know, you're really missing out on the benefit, uh, which is that, you know, people in using your products will tell you how to make them better. Mm -hmm. uh, by the way, uh, Apple has a lot of negative reviews about uh, Apple Maps, and yeah. uh, I remember when <laughs> I've learned uh, that in Australia, in many hotels, uh, uh, travelers got the message, don't use Apple Maps, because uh, in Australia we have alligators, lions, many other wild animals. <laughs> if you go to the desert or jungle, you know, uh, yeah. it's hard to save you, you know, if you are using Apple Maps, so it's better to use Google Maps. <laughs> so, but, you know, I think Apple can learn from that uh, to improve. Uh, well, here's, here's the thing, here's, the th and, and Apple is an interesting example, aren't they? Because they have a stellar reputation as a hardware company, mm -hmm. as a company that creates physical products that might have digital things on them. But, you know, it's the product itself that's really the star. And they're so, so good at that. But every company has a weak point. And for, mm -hmm. for Apple, the weak point is data-driven services. They don't really think of themselves as a company that focuses on services as much. And therefore, when they first launched Apple Maps, it's a fascinating story. I've known a couple of people who were involved at that in that process. When they launched it, they said, well, we're not a data company. We're going to create a great navigation interface. And then we're going to just go get data from somewhere. And it's going to be good enough. And that's, after all, that's what Google did. And we don't remember that in the early days of Google Maps, people used to be led astray into the forest and, and get lost. It was in the news <laughs> at the time, I remember. Mm -hmm. But that was ancient history now because they've done such a good job at that iterative improvement that now we don't remember those things. Apple, unfortunately, um, 
they made a big splash with the first release of Apple Maps and it was so bad because they had neglected the data layer and thought it would just take care of itself that they're still trying to get out from under that bad reputation that was created. <laughs> if you actually try to use Apple Maps today, it's much, much better than it used to be. I don't think you're going to die from an alligator attack in Australia <laughs> any, anymore uh, because they really have improved it. But they made a mistake. You know, they 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 underestimated the complexity of what they were trying to do. And mm -hmm. you can see how that can really hurt you if you don't. Uh, and, you know, the other thing that they did was they didn't move fast enough to fix it. And so they mm -hmm. ended up creating an impression that is still kind of hanging around. Um, but, yeah, I wouldn't discourage anybody from using Apple Maps anymore. I think they're actually <laughs> they're doing okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we have e uh, other uh, quote about that. If you launch a product and everyone uh, is satisfied with your product, that means you launch uh, so late <laughs> this product. So, you know, it's better to launch and learn from negative reviews and think how you can improve it. Then yeah. uh, to waste some time and develop in a way. And uh, uh, I think, yeah, uh, you mentioned that uh, all companies have their uh, weak side. I remember when Google uh, failed with uh, Google Plus. Yeah, we know about that uh, oh, yeah. because they are not good with social media. They are good They're with not a social engines. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. I think Apple has many uh, failures. Uh, Facebook has them, so it's part right. of the game, you know, from the big right. companies. Uh, and uh, by the way, Apple is going to launch uh, search engines. Yeah, we will see. <laughs> we will see. That. So, so Robert Scoble, uh, the tech blogger, he leaked that they were going to announce that at the WWDC this year, and then they didn't. Um, but mm -hmm. he did say that he had sources that said that there was going to be a search engine. The question is, what kind of a search engine? Um, because the news seems to be related to Siri as a voice interface. And mm -hmm. there already is some kind of search going on in the iPhone when you do like spotlight search or you can search using Siri where they bring in, it's like, it, it's called federated search, which basically means you're pulling in search results from different kinds of sources. So it might be from your contact list. It might be from the apps installed on your phone or it might be from the web, right? So that's federated. It's like, you know, threading together all these different channels of search and their web results are based on Bing, I believe. Um, and so the, the, or no, I'm sorry, it's Google. It's of course it's Google. Google pays them a lot mm -hmm. of money for that. Um, uh, um, so, uh, anyway, uh, Google is the source of the web results, but, um, the question is whether they might want to replace just that one part. It wouldn't be very conspicuous unless they launched like a public standalone search engine, mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, it, it, it's it's possible, but I think it's going to be very, very Apple-like in the sense that it's going to be embedded with other services, not mm -hmm. just a standalone product. It, it's hard to imagine that they would launch anything like that. Yeah, you will see. Uh, by the way, uh, Google pays uh, $15 billion to Apple to be yeah. uh, as a default search engine, and yeah. it's... 10% of all Google revenue is coming to Apple just to be uh, as a default in the search engine. So interesting yes. how Apple can lose <laughs> such money you now with their search engine. I mean, the, uh, I mean, if anybody can afford it, it's Apple. 
Yeah, and, yeah. And, and, and Apple wants to provide the best customer experience on the planet. And they know that for search, that means Google. And mm-hmm. if they're, if they're going to replace it, they better replace it with something that's very, very good. You know, so I, I can see all those drivers, you know, factoring into their, their, uh, their, their thinking. And it, you know, that's why uh, I'll believe it when I see it, but it's, it's hard to imagine what kind of form it would take, you know. Uh, again, I think you're right that companies have learned by making errors in strategic, you know, judgment that they shouldn't stray too far outside of their lane. Or if they mm-hmm. do it, they have to earn it kind of over time, you know, like you see Facebook going from the old, you know, what we would now call an old fashioned social network that's based on basically, you know, text communication between people you've explicitly establish a connection with then they purchased instagram in order to own the photo based version of social and now they're copying tiktok and snapchat but mostly tiktok in order to try to gain market share in the video version of social but every time they make a move like that it's very kind of like strategically aligned it's like a steps in a process that you can track you know and therefore it's it's more than likely going to be at least relatively successful whereas when mm-hmm. google tries to invent a social network out of nothing you know it it there's there's no basis for um believing that it's going to succeed and 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 it doesn't you know google plus is a great a great failure but and i and something that i doubt they will ever try to do again you know because mm-hmm. they you know yeah yeah uh, by the way i check out the features on google plus they were a great but i think uh of course i'm not big expert of that but i think uh google uh didn't consider that uh, it's hard to change habits you know of yeah. people because they have habits to use some features and uh, most uh, people uh, love to stay with some habits with some features that uh, facebook instagram other social media uh, have so yeah um, well yeah, they also they tried to force people to use Google Plus by making you have a Google Plus account in order to use YouTube. They tried to consolidate mm-hmm. everything into one account management system in order to use Gmail. I don't remember all the different ins and outs, but um, there in local, it was a big mess. Uh, during that era of the Google Plus era, there was uh, Google Places was the local platform. It still kind mm-hmm. of existed alongside Google Plus but there was this other thing called Google plus local where your business could have like a social profile as well as a places profile. And they sort of overlapped each other and they sort of didn't. And in order for somebody to review you, they had to have a Google plus account. And it was just so, so convoluted, you know, it was like doomed from the start. You could tell it was never going to work, you know, Uh, but Mm -hmm. partly the mistake that they made. And this is another, you know, this is a ancient history now, but it illustrates one of the things that one shouldn't do is don't put up pay, put up as few paywalls as possible, put up as few gates as possible, as few restrictions as possible. You want to you want to invite people to do something that's easy for them to do, not make it make their life harder uh, in order to somehow gain the value of this new thing that you're presenting to them. And there were way too many restrictions in order to use the thing at all, you know. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, love it, love it. Uh, by the way, you know, uh, Ahrefs launched their search engine. Uh, it's called Yep. <laughs> I heard about <laughs> that. They, they spent was it forty million bucks or something like that to? Oh, yeah, I actually sixty million. Yeah. Yeah, that right, right, right. I had an article recently on uh, Street Fight, which I write a column regularly for, which was about alternative search engines and will there be a search engine that will finally erode Google's market share, uh, and and. Again, I'm, I'm interested in this from a local perspective because I think mm-hmm. there's opportunity to be innovative and local and think of things that Google hasn't thought of. And, you know, there there's no um, it, it, again, if you look at TikTok and the way that they have posed a threat to Facebook, you the analogy is clear. There's going to be a point on the horizon at some someday when uh, Google will be threatened by someone who has an innovation that is stronger than anything that Google can easily replicate. Uh, mm-hmm. It's just a matter of when and who and what is that going to be. Uh, but when it comes to general search, um, you know, there is, I guess DuckDuckGo's uh, usage has recently started to decline, but they were on a pretty strong growth trajectory for the last several years because mm-hmm. of privacy, right? And mm-hmm. so privacy can be an angle, um, but there are, they're going to, and there are many, many alternate search engines out there that some of them are relatively popular. Another common theme is uh, support for charitable causes. So there are searches that, uh, search engines where every search helps to donate money to save the oceans or, you know, uh, and environmental causes and various things. Um, those are kind of niche you know, like they're kind of guaranteed maybe to be niche, but there's going to be um, there's going to be something else that's TikTok like that just turns it turns it on its head. You know, that approaches search from a different perspective. One one thing I know is at least possible is that uh, the same kind of visual first, mobile first orientation that made TikTok and Snapchat so successful could be applied to search. And I think that Google already knows that that threat exists, which is why they're investing so much in development of Google Lens as a way to search the internet, not just as, you know, take a picture of a flower and find out what kind of flower it is, uh, but as an actual um, entry point to search. Um, And of course, AR and VR could also be entry points to search, just point your phone to the world around you and interact with search content as a result. But Google's going to approach it from a perspective that is still somehow, you know, that you cannot ever move beyond your origins entirely, right? And Google's mm-hmm. in 1997 or eight, right? And so there's their old news in some ways. It's just that we don't yet know exactly what that new innovative point of view is going to be. But the the fact that there will be one, I think, is inevitable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, Damien, it's a big pleasure to get on my show, to learn from you. You share a lot of valuable insights. Tell our audience how they can reach out to you, learn more about you, follow you. Yeah, uh, you can follow me on Twitter at, at Damien Rollison. You can find out more about my company at meetsoci.com. That's M-E-E-T-S-O-C-I.com. Mm-hmm. Okay, guys, you can find all these links in the description below. Follow Damien on Twitter because you can you can see a lot of valuable insights. You can get a lot more just uh, simply following. Uh, thanks again. You know, it's a big pleasure. Welcome back anytime to share more value with my audience. Guys, you can find all these links in the description below. Listen to us on Apple, Google, Spotify, and see you next time. 
Thanks for listening to this entire podcast. Please rank your experience in Apple, Spotify, Google, or any other platforms that you may use. Also, please share your ranking mark on chat at seotools.tv to get a special gift. We'll see you soon on other valuable audio podcasts.